One, two, three. Welcome to Three Song Stories, the podcast that builds biography using songs that have become embedded into our guests' lives and memories. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. Our guest today is singer-songwriter Grant Malloy-Smith. Grant grew up here in Florida but now lives in New England. He records in Nashville and performs all over the country. His 2017 album Dust Bowl American Stories received excellent reviews, with No Depression magazine calling it, quote, as potent as Woody Guthrie and a reminder of the darker period of Bob Dylan, and it's that good, that memorable, end quote. Grant blends country, bluegrass, folk, and pop music. Over his career, he's performed at many prestigious venues, including Carnegie Hall, The Bitter End, the Clive Davis Theater at the Grammy Museum, the Troubadour, the National Sylvan Theater, and the Bluebird Cafe in Nashville. He has appeared on Song of the Mountains, that's the official television show of the state of Virginia, as well as on Woodsong's Old Time Radio Hour. Last year, he did a multi-city tour of Italy and has previously performed in England, Austria, Germany, and the Netherlands, and the National National Veterans Foundation recently selected his song Man of Steel as their official theme song. He's here in Florida for a concert tonight up in Northport and so has graciously agreed to stop by our studio to share his three songs and the stories that come with them. So let's get right to it. Hey there, Grant Malloy-Smith. How are you? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing fantastic. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Um, so you're playing up in Northport tonight. Yes, is that sir. a place you've played before? How did that come about? I don't even know how it came about, but I'm looking forward to it. I have not played there before. <laughs> I played in Fort Myers a few times, but never uh, up in Northport. Oh, really? Where did you play in Fort Myers? Do you remember? Yeah, the ACMA. Oh, that makes Americana. perfect sense. Yeah. yeah, we have them on our airwaves quite a bit, actually. That's great. So what was the musical background of your childhood? It was here in Florida, right? It was. Yeah, I grew up on the Panhandle, uh, mostly. My grandmother was from eastern Kentucky, and she liked bluegrass and old time, what she called it mountain music, hillbilly music. Mm -hmm. well, she didn't use the word hillbilly, but I just did. I don't mean that in a derogatory way. Sure, sure. Um, but I also was growing up at the time where the Beatles were like the biggest thing on the, on the earth. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, I mean, I had Beatles birthday parties. I had, oh, you know, yeah? So she, was, so, so she supported the Beatles? She wasn't uh, like, she, that's... She, that's taller, she bought me Meet the Beatles for $3 at the, at the drugstore. I remember that. Um, is that like a like a comic book or, or no? The, their first record that came out in the oh, USA. Oh, 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 Meet oh, the oh, wow. one with the four faces yeah, on yeah, the, yeah, in the yeah, shadow. Yeah. And uh, but I, so I was torn between these two worlds of the mountain music that my grandmother liked and she always played for me, and the more hip modern stuff that all the young people were listening to because I was very young. The whole world was just you know infatuated with mm -hmm. Beatlemania. So I was I I got influenced greatly by both both ends of that. What was spectrum? What, uh, what was the um, the music set up at your house? Did your folks have record player with yeah. a nice system and all that, or what was going on there? Back then, the, uh, this sounds like I'm 400 years old, but it wasn't that long <laughs> ago. But the, everyone had like a hi-fi, yeah. which is a piece of furniture mm -hmm. that had four legs and everything. It was like a big and had a big grill on the front of it with like gold. Uh, not real gold, but like gold threads covering the the one big speaker because, uh -huh. of course, it was monophonic. Yeah, yeah. There was stereo, but it was uh, uh, not common yet. Like color TV, it existed, but only a few people had it. Right, right. And What's the er earliest musical memory that you can recall if you try to dig back into your childhood? Wow. That's probably it. Probably the Beatles records. Mm. and But it was contemporaneous in my life with the the stuff that my grandmother played for me. And it, it, that covered a wide range, like Ralph Stanley and uh, Bill Monroe. Mm -hmm. She liked all those old-time uh, uh, mountain music guys. When did you pick up an instrument for the first time? I was probably four or five. Mm -hmm. I have a picture of me uh, when I was probably about five with, a, with probably the worst guitar ever. It was probably made out of balsa wood and it had little plastic strings, but there I am, very proudly. Uh, I had the... You know the uh, the strap that hold you know lets you hold a guitar when you're standing up. Yeah, yeah. I had it on wrong, and <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. But I I sure love to bang on it. When did you start like um, you know locking into music in a way that you thought maybe it'd be something you spend your life doing? Is that was that immediate or did it take some time? It took some time. I mean, all through my life I played music without knowing what I was doing. I could sit at a piano and I could play things, mm -hmm. even though I didn't know anything about music theory or anything. I never took any lessons, but I could play by ear. Same with the guitar, but I never really applied myself till the very end of high school when I, I just became, if, if you have a minute, I'll tell you this 
It's, it sounds we've, like we've a got stupid all the minutes. story. Let's go for it. <laughs> it was the last – I think it was the last month of high school and I never took – I could never stand to take any study halls. So I was done with high school about five months before they were willing to let me leave. I, I had see. I was taking classes that sophomores took and that was just because I had to. Had yeah, to yeah. take something. But when you didn't have a class, you could walk around in the middle of the school. They had a courtyard, an outdoor courtyard. And I was walking across it one day, kind of coming over the little hill that was in the middle of it, and I heard somebody playing the guitar. So there was so, so obviously kids, other seniors were out there. They were, one of them was playing the guitar. And, and I came over the hill and I saw, his back was to me, and he was sitting on the grass playing the guitar, singing songs, and he was surrounded by girls. Like he had about 30 or 40 girls. Now just looking at him, little batting their little eyes and everything. And I said, what? And I used a word I won't say on the radio, but I said, who is that jerk? You know, something like that. And because I would never have had the nerve to do that uh-huh. at 17 years old. And um, and I got around where I could see who it was, and it was my friend Scott, who was probably the shyest kid in the entire school. He was a very good-looking guy and everything, but he was just very really shy, and he would go to a dance. Shyer than you? Oh, way shyer, yeah. yeah. I was just self-conscious about, uh, you know. About like, your music, yeah, yeah. But, uh, and I didn't know how to play either, but, uh, <laughs> but he was not. I couldn't believe the other side of him. When he got a guitar in his hand, he would do anything. He could walk out on stage and front of 10,000 people. I stood there for a long minute, just look. I couldn't believe my eyes for one thing. And then I noticed something. My 17-year-old reptile brain said, if you have a guitar and you are singing songs, all the girls will come around and look at you and like you. And I thought, I got to get me a guitar. (laughs) And a week later, I actually got one. I got a $15 yard sale guitar, and that was the beginning of the end for me with music. Were you, um, were you, did you have to overcome that self-consciousness, or was that a big enough target that you barreled right on in through it? <laughs> <laughs> Once I learned how to actually play and sing and, and started writing songs, it, it never, never bothered me. And I, I don't really get uh, stage fright. I don't, it doesn't bother me. That's, I like that's long, long behind you. That's, long that's, behind. Um, what was your first band? And I, cause I kind of know that it wasn't what you do no, now. No, no, it was more like a rock band. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was kind of like uh, rock ballads and kind of more not really progressive rock. What would it be inspired by? Like what would be a contemporaneous band? Reference? Wow. Something that, that we could liken it to perhaps. I don't know if I have a contemporaneous reference, but back then, this is like in the 80s, my first band. It was, it was a band called Britannia, believe it or not. But we didn't pretend to be English or anything. It was just like the name. And uh, we did kind of rock ballads, sort of like, I don't know, what would you compare it to? It's harder to describe. More like the Elton John rock kind of stuff. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. But not really Elton John, but in that. How long was it around and, and why did it? Why did you move on? Uh, well, a few people got arrested and somebody <laughs> left the state. <laughs> Where was this? Where was it? It was the... up in Rhode Island. That was in Rhode Island? Yeah. Well, we played around New England for a few years. and We opened up for like Steppenwolf and... The Guess Who and, you know, kind of obviously bigger, big names that came through the region. And this is a crazy aside, but do you, you happen to know Bill Metz? You know that name? No. That sounds familiar, but I don't he's know a, He's is. a guest we had on here. He's a singer-songwriter, mm-hmm. uh, finger picker, and he was on here. He plays the ACMA stuff, and uh-huh. he's from Rhode Island. And, really? I mean, like, there's a he, lot of correspondence. Yeah, yeah. That's funny. It's such a small place. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he's about your age, so you guys may have you, been around each other in maybe. some weird way. Um, okay, so the first music that you owned yourself was that Beatles uh, yes. album. Uh, what was the first band that you really – was it the Beatles that you really locked onto? Like, yeah. you know, that was your first – Definitely, like, yeah. And that carried you all the way through into high school and what? Not. Yeah, I mean they were they were passe by then, but but I, I got into more hard rock stuff for a while, and like I loved Aerosmith when they came out. Mm-hmm. That, that was like in high school. I even like some of that crazy stuff, like you know Alice Cooper and David Bowie and that kind of crazy stuff that was around in that time. So when did you get into the singer songwriter Americana roots genre? How long how long before that entered your life? Well, I did that at the beginning, and then I sort of when I first started in music, and when I was about seventeen. Okay, but that's then where I, you, that's where you started went, with the I want to impress girls, right? Gotcha. Exactly. Yeah. But then I went into the rock band thing, and then I came back over time, and maybe about ten years ago, I, I decided I was too old to do crazy rock music. Plus, I hadn't been doing it uh, uh, live for a while because I was doing. In, I had a studio, still do, and I did movie scores mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. And, you know, when you have a family and kids. It's not a good. It's not conducive to the rock star lifestyle. So right. I didn't do that for a long time. And but when I was getting ready to, you know, come out and play live and travel around like a, like a fool, <laughs> like I do now, I just I had already got into the American roots thing, 
And I had made one record called Yellow Trailer that was uh, my first American Roots record. And I thought, this is just where I belong. This is where I started, and this is where I'm going to end up. Hmm. And, and I never never thought twice about it. And you have your own studio, or, or you yeah. had your own studio? Because now you also record in Nashville and places like that, yeah, too. Yeah, I use my studio just for recording demos, primarily. Gotcha. So I make demos before I make the real record. But I, I can get it to about 80% the way I want it to be. And yeah, then, yeah. And then I can play it for the musicians and other people, and they go, oh, we know what you're going for. Hmm. And they make it better. And you write all your own songs? I do. Uh, what's that process like? I mean, I don't, we probably spend an hour going down that road. <laughs> yeah, because it varies. I mean, yeah. sometimes I'll wake up, or often I'll get an, a really good idea for a song just in the shower first thing in the morning. I think your brain isn't quite mm-hmm. here yet. It's sort of still in dreamland a little bit. And it may be, maybe the ideas flow differently than they would during the day when you're trying to think of something. But I've got plenty of ideas that way. And then I have to keep it in my head because I'm always paranoid. Oh, I'm going to forget it before I – you know, it's like when you first wake up and you remember your dream and then a minute later you can't remember. Oh, yeah. It's all there and then it was like, where would that go? It right. just disappears. And so I, I don't want that to happen if it's a really good idea. So I rush quickly and uh, go into my little – Project studio, I grab an instrument and figure out what I was thinking, and then I just make a very simple – I'll even do it with my, my I was going to ask. It seems like, yeah, you can just uh, – I just heard – I forget who it was, but – oh, it was um, Julian Lennon, John Lennon's mm-hmm. son, and Les Claypool from Primus. Yeah. They sat around uh, for a weekend, and they just had their phones sure. recording, and they just recorded everything, and then they went to their separate places, yeah. and then they kind of deconstructed and then came back together. Yeah. And it's like, oh, that's so cool. It's just a tool because you, know, you yeah. can't remember – Stuff unless you have an amazing memory. Yeah. How many guitars do you have? Um, maybe a dozen or so. Yeah. Do you have any like uh, other stringed instruments that you also dabble with? Mandolin, yeah. maybe mandolin. ukulele. I got two mandolins. Like I have a ukulele. I have a banjo. You know, I learned the banjo a few years ago, and it really influenced my guitar playing. Oh yeah. Yeah. Hmm. The finger picking stuff because that's that's what a banjo is. Yeah. Yeah. Were you strongly. were you doing much finger picking before the banjo, no. or did that just bring it all kind of in there for yeah, you? Yeah, I did a little bit, but uh, I didn't really know how to do it. I was mostly strumming and like flat picking. And mm-hmm. when you learn the banjo, though, your your right yeah, hand, yeah. if you're right handed, gets very good with the. It has to be really accurate and really fast. Mm-hmm. Only three fingers, but typically, but. Uh, Suddenly you got back to the guitar and it was all kind of right there for you. I just started doing banjo rolls and I was like, this is cool. (laughs) I got to add another finger and I learned how to do that. And and, uh, that just really helped me a lot. Cool, cool, cool. Okay, well, we're going to get to your first song. Uh, What is it and why is it? I think I chose Help, the Beatles song, because I had a birthday party. I don't know what age I was. I was very young. I was maybe less than five. But I I do remember we had a, a Beatles birthday party for me up in Milton, Florida. All my friends I've been came. In Milton, Florida. Have you? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we went to see the movie. I think the movie was out at that time. It was. We all went to see it in the theater, and it's a very great memory for me. It means it means a lot, and it's of course connected to Beatles, which is what really was a, one of my two huge influences, musically speaking. How many kids were at the party? Oh, I don't remember. Five or six, probably. Do you remember any, any of the gifts you got? Were any of them Beatles related? Was it all Beatles related? Since it was like a Beatles remember. party. <laughs> I don't know. There might have been. There probably were some Beatles-related gifts. You know, back then the whole world was just infatuated with the Beatles, and you could buy Beatles everything. Yeah, you know, Beatles wigs, Beatles fake boots. You know, all that's what stuff. I'm imagining. Yeah, I'm imagining yeah. like Beatles lunchbox and yeah, Beatles, probably, yeah, all that stuff. I know for a fact I had a Beatles lunchbox. That's for sure. Probably worth a lot these days. <laughs> <laughs> it was in good shape. It's probably worth five hundred dollars. Okay, well let's listen to it together. This is "Help" by the Beatles from their 1965 album of the same name. That was also, as you just said, on on the soundtrack. Or it was the soundtrack to the film of the same name. When was the last time you listened to that? Oh, I think it was last summer. Yeah, I bought a Beatles uh, CD and I had it in my car for a while. I was driving around, listening to all the all the classics. And would there, if you had to have picked a second Beatles song, what would it have been? I want to hold your hand. Yeah, why? I think it's well, it's the first song on side one of their first record. So it's the first thing that hit your ears. Yeah, and it was a huge hit, and that's uh, a great song. Hmm. It's funny that people used to think that that stuff is hard rock. Right. You know, there was people revolted against it. Some of the older people and oh, burned yeah. the records and. It, it, when you listen to it now, it sounds so innocent. Yep. And, and think of the content, the the adult content of "I want to hold your hand." Right. You know, it's not like anything more adult than that. It's "I want to hold your hand," which is so innocent and nice. Did you ever have the chance to see them by chance? No, I never did. I wish I had. Hmm. 
What about like Paul McCartney or any of the other, you know? No, I haven't s- seen him. I've seen him in person, but not doing a show. Like I've been to the Grammys and he's, you know, he's standing there. Oh, right. hundred feet away from me. How many times have you been to the Grammys? Uh, I don't know. Half a dozen times. Or no, so. yeah. What's that like? I've never been talking to anybody that's been to the Grammys. <laughs> it's a big, well, it's obviously a big thing. It's, yeah. I mean, it's a big show. The last few times I've gone, I, I didn't go to the TV show part, the part that you see on TV. There's, there's really two shows. There's one that they don't put on TV. It's on the, they stream it on their uh, website, the mm-hmm. Grammy.com. That's where they give out nearly every Grammy. They gave out 75 Grammys at the premiere gotcha. show uh, last month when I went to it, including a, but six to my friends, which was yeah. really nice to see and fun to hang out with them. And then, uh, then they have a, a short break and then they, everybody moves from the Microsoft Center next door to the Staples Center and then a, I think it's one hour in between. Then they start the big show at 5 p.m., which is out here at, at uh, 8 p.m. live. What was the biggest crowd you've played for? Wow. I don't remember maybe about 10,000 people yeah. there's a festival and and no no nerves no yeah. no the more people there are the easier it actually ah, gets well i guess i could now that you say that i guess yeah. i could see that playing so, for one person is weird cuz then you don't look <clears throat> kind of just look at you for all through the, <laughs> <laughs> and people don't know where to look like they don't want to stare you in the face you know so when you play for a small room you know like a place where maybe there's 40 people in there is that would you prefer that to the giant crowd or would you I like them both yeah. i just did that last night over in north miami it was about 40 people and tonight will probably be about the same um, but I like them both. They're different experiences. And, and uh, it's also a difference when you play, uh, like I've been doing this week, solo shows uh, compared to doing a band show. Mm-hmm. They're different experiences for, for everybody. And, and, they, and you, it is a different show, very different. You mean you have to, it has to be. Do you have a band that you have that you kind of play with all the time or does it mm-hmm. kind of come and go or describe what that paradigm is like for you these days? It, for the last uh, year or so, it's been very consistent. It's been the same group of people, people I know that are in Nashville and they all live there. Even though, ironically, one of them's from Rhode Island, but he's been in Nashville for like 20 years. What a strange coincidence that is. There's hardly anybody in Rhode Island, so (laughs) it's amazing that you find these people that are from there. Right, right. Um, But it's been the same group of people. But I haven't played with them since uh, November when I did Carnegie Hall. I've been doing acoustic stuff. What uh, what is the configuration? It's uh, a percussionist. It's, it's a drummer. He's a drummer. Full he's, drum kit? No, he has a, it's a modified thing. So he, he calls himself more of a percussionist because he uses lots of uh, colors when he plays. So he has a drum kit, but he, the kick drum is a, is a cajon that he sits on and he operates it. He has a pedal that, with a gooseneck uh, uh, lever that goes around and kicks it. You know. And then uh, – and he does have cymbals and all that stuff and he has a couple of drums. But then he – instead of a snare drum, he uses uh, a big djembe. Oh, okay. Which is really cool. And you wow. get lots of different I, yeah, sounds. No, he has lots of hands. This is not the direction I envision you going. No, with it's this American con- Rootsy Yeah, that's stuff. great. So he can, he can be loud just like a drummer if he wants to be, but he can also play in between, hmm. in between hand percussion and a drum kit. And then who else? A fiddle player, a very talented guy, Samuel <clears throat> Damewood. Uh, the, the percussionist is Matt Burgess, by the way. He's played on many, many records. And, and the bass player, who's originally from Rhode Island, is uh, uh, Brian Hinchliffe. Hmm. Very talented guy. Um, had you played at Carnegie Hall before? No. Is it kind of nice to just be able to say, you know, when I last yeah, month when I was know. playing at Carnegie Hall? Because <laughs> <laughs> it, it seems stuff. to me like it would be really, really rewarding for someone yeah. who's, who's, who's it, played a lot of places. It is because it's – I mean everybody's heard of it. It's world famous. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's pretty cool to say that I did that. Hmm. Uh, do you have a dream gig? Like what's next? Yeah, like what's uh, the next one up the, the ladder the for you one. in terms of what you would like to score? Grand Ole Opry. Yeah. Mother Church. That's my that's my goal. I think when I do that, then I'll be able to lay down, have a sleep. Turn back to Elton John Rock? <laughs> no, no. I don't think that's going to happen at my age. I'm too old for that stuff now. So where does music, uh, like listening to music, fit into your life? Do you, you mentioned you bought a CD last year of the Beatles yeah. or whatever. Do you, is that how you're listening to music? Have you gone to Pandora and all these things? Or Describe just how you consume other people's music. I like physical media. Okay. And it, maybe it's my generation. I think it's that, uh, the fact that I grew up with actual records, you know, big LPs. Uh, that is part of that. It's probably most of it. But I also am not a huge fan of the streaming stuff, to mm-hmm. be honest. I know it's convenient for everybody. I know. But they don't hardly pay anything. So as an artist, 
um, we're not getting the best end of that deal. Right. And I've had people at the end of a show come up to me, oh, I love your music. I want to buy your CD. Oh, wait a minute. Are you on uh, Spotify? I'll just, never mind. I'll just go listen to you for right. nothing on Spotify. Yeah, yeah. Are you on Spotify? Uh, yes, but not for long. Yeah? Oh, yeah? <laughs> I'm not, when I, when I, I'm working on a record now. I'm not going to put it on streaming for at least a year. Okay. I mean, ultimately, I mean, the reality is it has to be there, but it doesn't have to be there right away. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, um, do you do other than CDs these days? Do you have vinyl or anything like that? I will. The next record's going to be put out on vinyl. Okay. That's and I, become... I will include a CD or something with it, too, because a lot of people don't have a record player, but... Um... Well, you know, it is interesting. Well, that's one of the questions that we always ask on this show is when was the last time you bought music that had a physical form? And almost universally, like you are an outlier. Almost everybody else is <laughs> <I like, know. laughs> wow, it's been a long time. So yeah. as a musician, I can totally feel that sort yeah. of dissonance between, you know. Yeah. I mean, if you make your money from It's like being a photographer music. and people say, you want to come – take pictures for free because you'll get exposure and yeah, it's like sure. well, I can't buy food with exposure <laughs> yeah the bank doesn't cash those exposure bucks they don't deposit them into your account yeah yeah but it does you know it, it is exposing more people to more music than, than it was so I mean, hopefully it is the that, reality it is the reality yeah, it's yeah, not going to go away not so. going to turn back that yeah exactly no we just have to try to make it work better for us and, and yeah. uh, in the last year we did get some legislation passed in this country anyway to make it a little better now I saw on the news that um, the music news that you know the the copyright office had a uh, enacted a very big increase in songwriter royalties mm -hmm. like forty four percent. Of course, it hadn't changed in you know eighty years, but right. nonetheless they did Im improve it. And now the Spotify and Pandora et cetera are suing to uh, to undo it. Hmm. So they're not really our friends, by the way. All you musicians out there, just really think about it. Hmm. Um, you mentioned that you scored films before. Uh, how did you get into that? And can you just talk a little bit about the difference between scoring, you know, writing music to go along with a visual mm -hmm. versus writing music that you're going to perform in front of people on a stage? Yeah. Well, it's really different. You're, as a film composer, your job is completely different. Your job is to help tell the story of the film, to help the film be better. Not to showcase your music or mm -hmm. uh, make it. People shouldn't even notice the music, honestly. Yeah, yeah. If it sticks out, then you're taking them out of the movie. You're hmm. taking people out of the. You know, you, when you watch a movie, you want to suspend your disbelief and get into the story and enjoy it. And the music should accentuate the emotions of the film and the drama. In some cases, sometimes even to mislead you in a way mm -hmm. to make the surprise greater when it happens. You know, everybody knows the foreboding music. You know, when you go into a creepy place to help make that mood be uh, scarier or darker or whatever it is. Or, and then there's also very lush music when it's maybe more of a romantic thing. Uh, I think the hardest thing to score is um, comedy because hmm. you don't want the music to sound goofy like a, yeah, like, like like a, a cartoon. Yeah, exactly. You know? So you have to walk that line. Or, and, you know, I think you also have to not score everything. You know, you have to choose what to score. So normally at the beginning of a film process, you sit down with the director and you go through the script and you decide where the music really should be. Right. Even before they shot the movie. Yeah. When the movie is shot, it, it makes it more clear, you know, you, when you can see it. Because when you're watching a movie that hasn't, doesn't have any music in it, it's really painful. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you, you've, you, you don't experience that normally. Even TV shows you know, like dramas on TV, they have music. Um, and when you see one without it, you're like, what is wrong with this? Why is it so bad? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, uh, I'm the technical director for the Fort Myers Film Festival. We're now in our ninth year. Oh, you know and, all about film. Now. Uh, well, I, I push the buttons. I'm the guy that makes it appear on the screen. But I've seen a lot of for short films, yep. a lot of short films, and a lot of independent documentaries and things mm -hmm. like that. And so I know the breadth of how bad or good it can be. <laughs> you know, there are music some... can help a film a lot. It can also hurt a film oh, if it's not God, good. music can so heard a film yeah. if it's not that right. Yeah. Um, are you completely self-taught in terms of your knowledge of music and music like – because, you know, to, to create emotion with music, you kind of have to know how music works. Yeah. And how did you – did you teach yourself? Did I somebody did. teach you? I did teach myself. I had one guitar lesson. I think I was 12. And hmm. I said no because the guy wanted me to go dun, 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 dun for like two hours. Right. And, you and were I'm like, looking outside like, and me some my chords. friends are playing soccer <laughs> and there's – it's like, nah, I'm not, I don't like this. Hmm. So 
Um, karaoke. You ever do karaoke? I have. I did it one time in my whole life. Was it any? Was it different than doing what you do, <laughs> or did it? Or was you know what I mean? It seems like for somebody who gets up in front of an audience and yeah. performs their own stuff, to do karaoke might be kind of a little bit of a weird <laughs> psychological process. <laughs> it was. It was weird. I didn't want to do it because you know. I do my own songs normally. And, yeah, yeah. But I got I got roped into it. And uh, do you remember what it was? Yeah, I did. I, I did. Twist, I did twist and shout. Oh, okay. And I killed it. <laughs> I won like a hundred dollars. I was like, wow. I oh, really? You could sing. Like, so what? you, so you, uh, so you won a karaoke contest singing a Beatles song. Yeah, <laughs> I can scream that thing like John Lennon. <laughs> Oh, no, I'm not going to make you do it. Um, what about dancing? Are you a dancer? I'm the worst dancer ever. Does that mean you dance just badly or you don't dance? I usually don't dance because it, it might be illegal how bad I am. Okay. Uh, violating several <laughs> state statutes, I'm sure. Um, in terms of going and seeing other bands' music, do you have a favorite concert that you have, you know, that you can think back to? Wow. Not really. I mean, I've seen a bunch of concerts and a wide range of concerts from like the rock concerts to, you know, James Taylor. My wife's a big James Taylor fan, so I've taken her to see him. Um, and sometimes I've opened up for other artists, that, and it's fun to, to then go sneak around and watch yeah, them. be in the wings. Yeah, yeah, that would be really cool. Yeah. Who have you opened up for? Can you remember any of the highlights? Yeah, there have been a, in the last couple of years, I've opened up for uh, John Ford Coley, and uh, I've opened up for Rita Coolidge, and, uh, and oh, a few others I can't remember right now. Hmm. But yeah, that's fun. It's fun to go see them do their thing, you know, after I played. Yeah, yeah, uh, do you how do you travel around? Do you have a van or do you fly it, in and rent? Like what's your It depends on the circumstance. I usually drive like this time I'm driving because I have to bring a lot of equipment around mm-hmm. and uh even though it's a thousand miles, I just it's a 3-week trip, so I'm st- stopping all the way down the East Coast. I didn't if I planned it better, I would have Florida in the middle and then, you know, have shows on the way back, but I don't. Uh, right. So on my last show, then I have to drive a thousand miles. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you stop somewhere along the way, and do, oh, do you ever do open mics or anything? It seems like it might be not fun just to dive in and show up and play three songs yeah, and smile once in a while. and head out. Once in a while, I do. Hmm. Yeah. Well, sometimes people, uh, if a place is not sure about whether they want me to to pay me to play, right. they'll say, "Come in and do our open mic on Wednesday or whatever night they do it." And and I've I've done that as like a like a demo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this maybe audition. turns into a Friday night gig. Yeah, yeah. So. Hmm. Hmm. Um, okay, we're going to move on to song number two. Song number two is Superstition, Superstition by Stevie, Stevie Wonder. Wonder. Yeah. Okay, I got uh, a. I went to a big phase where I loved that uh, Stevie Wonder, Ray Charles, all Motown stuff, Memphis soul stuff, uh, and uh, this song brings back a lot. I had this record when I went to college, and uh, it's the first time I was away from home. You know, as a young adult. I, in fact, I wasn't even 18 till college started because I, I started school a year early. What college? Uh, the first year was at Maryland uh, College of Art up in Baltimore. So I went down there by myself. Well, my parents brought me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They left you though. <laughs> they left me. <laughs> they made sure I got – they didn't have a housing or anything. So we had to get an apartment. And all oh, and I wasn't, okay. Well, that's wasn't complicated for a 17-year-old. A yeah. But they had a few roommates. That was cool. And I remember it was art school, so I was, you know, drawing and painting. Mostly was my homework. Uh, and there was also so this was visual arts. Yeah, gra- oh, graphical okay. arts. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was studying painting and illustration, and um, that's what I thought I was going to be my whole life, until you were until I a, saw that an guy illustrator. <laughs> the, the, okay, <laughs> I was. That's what, and and I was already going to art school when that, have, when that happened. And so. you had like you know you were doing a lot of that as a kid. Then you had binders oh, of yeah. all oh, that yes. stuff. Okay. Yeah. Yep. You have to be pretty good to get into art school. You yeah. can't really go there to learn art. Right. I mean, well, you make you better, of course. Right, right. And you learn te- technique. But um, I used to listen to Stevie Wonder a lot when I was doing homework and when I was painting and drawing at night. And I think I played that, that record one million times Yeah. <laughs> over the course of the school year. I just like it. I think it's great. And so it takes you back to not your dorm room, to your bedroom in your apartment. Yeah. Okay. Oil paint all over my hands and clothes and everywhere else. And this would have been what? I guess the album came out in 72, so somewhere. Just a few years later. A few years after yeah. that? Yeah. Okay, well, let's listen to it. This is Superstition by Stevie Wonder from his 1972 album Talking Book. Um, 
how long were you in art school? When did illustration go away for you? After two years, I said I uh, I just flipped over to music. I said that's my that's what I'm doing now. Yeah, yeah. And, but you said you didn't have your first band for a little while after that, right? Uh, yeah, it was a few years. I, I dedicated myself to learning how to write songs mm-hmm. and how to play the guitar, <laughs> which I had just bought uh, right after high school, the summer before college. Right. And I played. I learned. I taught myself to play the, the the guitar and the piano at the same time. It was actually easier to learn both because you could learn something. It's piano is very visual, easy to see. Right. And uh, on the other hand, the guitar. If you buy a like, if you know, let's say you know that song, uh, the one we just played, Superstition. You know it. So you know if you're playing it wrong because you know what it should be. Mm-hmm. And it, you can buy the sheet music at the store, and it shows in the case of the guitar. Exactly where little dots are where you put your hand right on the fretboard, and I can go oh so you go, bring yeah that's right and then the next chord is bring oh okay and then it then takes a while to learn how to really do that well yeah but, yeah but at least you know where to put your so you have a visual reference right and then then I could go to the piano and go so if I go bring on the guitar how do I make that exact chord on the piano. And then, so I could learn both at the same time. Because it's still all the same letters. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, as, as somebody who plays uh, piano and guitar, I tell people that uh, guitar is just six pianos <laughs> <laughs> offset by a few notes. Exactly, yeah. Um, uh, when did you get your first good guitar? Really good one? Yeah. Like, well, really? like better than your $15 one anyway. Oh, yeah. Well, it was during, it was during that time. Yeah? Uh, yeah. Do you still one, have it? No, no, it's long sold. Oh. First, it was a Yamaha. I think it was like five hundred dollars. What do you play with now? Like, what's your go-to? Uh, acoustically, it's Taylor guitars. I like I like them a lot. I don't have an endorsement deal. I don't get any money from them. Right. I have to buy them like everyone else. But uh, I just like them. <laughs> I like the way the neck is. When you were first really turning to learn, you're like I'm going to learn guitar. What mm-hmm. were the songs you were playing? Because you probably didn't start by writing your own songs, no. right? What were the songs that were like those ones that you played a thousand times? Because there are probably a couple of them. Yeah, well, I had a, about a inch thick book of Beatles songs because okay. I knew so many of them. That I could, if I would know if I was doing it wrong. Yeah, everybody would recognize all those songs, Elton John, Beatles, all that stuff that was popular in the early seventies. You still have a lot of Beatles tablature in your head. <laughs> well, not really. I mean, I don't. For I haven't played anybody else's songs hardly at all for decades now. Yeah, I, there's a couple of songs I know, but very few. Hmm. Children's book books. How'd that come about? Well, that's a crazy story. <laughs> that's a crazy story. About a year, a little more than a year ago, so it was before, before the last Christmas, two Christmases ago, I was on a radio show in East Tennessee, and uh, I looked in the studio, and everywhere you looked, there were pictures of possums and funny things about possums and a, and a stuffed one, like a real one that was stuffed, and, uh, and cartoon ones. And, I, and after the interview, I asked the, the, the guy, the host of the show, Tim White, out there in East Tennessee, what is this almost disturbing fascination you have with possums? <laughs> and he said, "Oh, I don't know. I just like them. They're 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 easily maligned. You know, they're kind of the the brunt of a lot of jokes uh, mm-hmm. here in the South. You see them uh, as roadkill quite a bit because they don't have very good hearing or eyesight, and they yeah. come out at night and yeah. they cross the road sometimes, and they they're easily they fall. They easily. don't see it coming or hear it coming. No, <laughs> like but maybe that's a blessing." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But uh, I said, well, that's okay. He just likes it. He made a whole record uh, years ago about possums where every song, a bluegrass record, where every song is something to do with a possum. Mm. And it's quite funny. But um, I, so I thought, now he's a host of a TV show called Song of the Mountain. That you mentioned it in the yeah, pro- yeah. prologue there. The, that's a PBS uh, TV show that I was hoping to get that he would invite me to be on. So I thought, I'm going to curry a little favor with Mr. Wyatt. I will write him a bluegrass possum song. Wow. So I went home and I did that. And it was almost Christmas, it was like late November. And I thought, you know, when you sit down and you think, I'm going to write me a possum song, I mean, what would you do? How, what would it, I don't want to write like muskrat love. Like, <laughs> <something>. <laughs> I just can't do that. I have to make it kind of funny and I have to make it be, try to make it clever. Yeah. And not just and Own stupid. it, you know, do your own. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. And he's a bluegrass guy, so I made a, a hard, real hardcore bluegrass song with, you know, typical bluegrass approach and instrumentation and everything. And because it was almost Christmas, I made it be 
have a Christmas theme because <laughs> I figured, well, he'll play it on on his radio show for the next month, you know. Yeah, and he and he did, and it's I wrote uh, like a little fantasy about. Uh, if you're growing up in that in Appalachia there, and you, know, you look you look up on the roof, and Santa's up there with the reindeer, at, you know that Christmas Eve. Sure. And then all what if what if the reindeer just couldn't go on? They were really sick. They got some who knows food poisoning or something from eating them cookies. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> got some bad cookies. Um, so whatever. So the you know of course possums would come to the rescue right? right so we'd bring our our possums up that we feed every night and and the Santa would give him his magic and the, so that's the that's the idea of the song it's called fly possum flies so it's it's possums pulling Santa's sleigh they saved Christmas right. they really did right here in Virginia <laughs> <laughs> so um, I sent it to him and he played it and uh, and then a, about a, I don't know a couple months later I guess it was. Uh, uh, my publicist said, well, obviously you've thought about turning this song into a children's book. I'm like, what are you talking and about? And you said, sure I did. <laughs> I never, <laughs> never would think of such a thing. And I said, well, I, no, I don't want to. That's not what I do. And I want to – it never would occur to me in a million years to make it anything into a children's book. But he said, no, that would be a cute book. And, you know, you could do the illustrations, which I could do. And uh, he said, what if I could get you a book publishing deal? Would you do it? Said, well, yeah, if you got me a bag of money and, you know, and a Lamborghini, sure, I'd take him. But uh, you're not going to – that's not going to happen. So, But a week later, he had a book publishing deal for me. <laughs> he, put, <laughs> he put the book out and then it sort of made my career go a slightly that, different direction That was for fly, fly, Possum, Fly. Yeah, Fly, Possum, Fly. Okay. And then and, now there's a sequel, I understand. Yeah, well, you know. It's got a good, clever name. One good possum book deserves another. So yeah, there's another one coming out. Uh, called uh, The Possibilities Are Endless. And it's not a Christmas thing. It's about – it's showing possums, little char- possum characters doing all kinds of different jobs. And the theory of well, – the, the premise of the book is that kid, two little kids are asking their mom and dad, you know, what am I going to be when I grow up? What? And the parents then tell them in the course – it's also a song, which I haven't recorded yet, but – the lyrics or the the text of the book is are the lyrics to the song, oh, like it is cool. with the other book. Okay, so it just kind of continues on that theme where it's a song that's a book with, with pictures and the characters yeah. are are uh, nearsighted. Had you kept up with your drawing and illustrating, or was that no. something you had to kind of like rehatch? I really had to go back and get my chops up again because I hadn't drawn or illustrated like that in you know twenty five years. Did it come years. back to you? Yeah, it did. It did. It took a while. It took me a couple of weeks to – like if you didn't play the guitar for, you know, a year. Right. Or what if you didn't play it for 30 years? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you sort of remember how, but you may not be that good at it until, you you know, you put some hours in. Hmm. Well, I'll have to look at it. I haven't seen it. I just read about it. I oh, I can it. show you. I don't have it here, but I have it in the car. Um, uh, do you have any TV theme songs committed to memory? And if so, can you sing them for us? Wow. Uh, probably the Beverly Hillbillies. Yeah, you're not the first. <laughs> yeah, that's so memorable, and that has one of the best banjo players. Can we that hear a little ever bit? existed playing, I, Mister? I'm not ashamed to oh, try to sing it. For I me. hope I can remember it now that I said I could. Let's see. Come and listen to a story about a man named Jed, a poor mountaineer, barely kept his family fed. Then one day he was shooting at some food, and up from the ground came a bubbling crude. Oil, that is. Black gold, <laughs> Texas tea. Oh, uh, oh that's I could awesome. I go on, but I won't. Well, isn't it uh, – it, that's, a, that's a question that we started throwing at people about halfway through the year. And it's funny how that's a really good example of how yeah. music gets in there exactly. and doesn't go away. You'll never forget it. You'll never forget it. Exactly. Like the Gilligan's Islands, another one. That, yeah. That's, that same era, late 60s, right, when yeah, it came out. Oh, I know. And that's when they would just – you know, they'd paint this beautiful picture at the beginning of every episode. And, yeah. yeah. Hmm. The old days. Um, what about music? Musical theater, are you into that scene at all? Do you have any Broadway shows or anything like that that, that you like or that have hmm. connected to you throughout your life? Not really. No? Not really. No. I don't dislike it. Some people really don't like musical theater. Right. I don't dislike it. I just – I guess I never got uh, – Just never got the bit bug. Yeah. What about like uh, musical movies like you know, like Oliver or you know, whatever throughout the yeah, decades? Yeah, there were a few that I've liked. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of that but I, I don't – Again, I don't dislike them. Right. I, I like the fact that they're coming back in a way. There have yeah. been a few movies lately, like big budget movies, uh, that 
they're not exactly musicals like they used I to know, be. Exactly they disguise what it like about. a dream, uh-huh. or but because people don't break out into song at Walmart. Exactly. And if they do, you should call the authorities. Have you seen Across the Universe? No, but oh, I want to see that. Oh, my goodness. That's, Do you know what it is? Yeah, yeah. You, as a Beatles guy, are going to love that movie because what they did is – and you probably at least know the basic description of it, but it's filled with Beatles songs. Yeah. But they create the narrative using the those as the pivot points. Yeah. And so suddenly every song ha- is in context That's for a cool. movie. That's cool. It's my, I, I love this film. And I got to see it. I showed it to my daughter about three months ago. She's almost 14. It's like her favorite thing in the entire really? world. Yeah, wow. which is really cool, right? <laughs> well, there's a new one. I don't know if it's out yet, but it's about to be out. I think it's called Yesterday. Mm, a guy, there's like an electrical event that affects the entire world mm. and uh, everything goes off and it comes back on again. And this guy who's the hero of the movie, he, he's a musician and he goes around and he plays Beatles songs. He plays like cover songs in bars and places like that. And he's pretty good at it. But it, he wakes up. And he makes a – during the course of the day, he's, he mentions like uh, one of the Beatles songs and everybody's like, what are you talking about? Oh. No one has ever heard of the Beatles oh, somehow. They yeah. got erased from history and he's the only one. So he start, he, he's taking his guitar carry. and he plays Yesterday and all of, all of his friends go, oh my god, that's the best song I ever heard. <laughs> he's like, did you write that? Like, no, Paul McCartney wrote that. And he goes, well, who's Paul McCartney? Hmm. You know, the Beatles. Who's that? Oh. No one but him knew the Beatles. Uh, I got to see a, that one. There's I, a great scene in the trailer because he's on like a TV show. Yeah. And they're like, can you play just something like off the top of your head? <laughs> and he plays like, um, and that might be when he plays yesterday. He plays one of them for the first time ever in the history Everybody of those freaks people's out, brains. Right? Yeah. Play, I think he plays Hey Jude or something. Oh, yeah, people, yeah. people are like, that's amazing. This guy's a genius. <laughs> <laughs> what an interesting premise. But I wish I, that would happen to me. I could make a lot of money. Right, exactly. Um, <laughs> Um, well, no, it, it's it's interesting that you said that there are a lot of films these days that are doing they're bringing back music, but in in like less Moulin, Moulin Rouge. Moulin and, Rouge is a good example. Uh, yeah, um, and there's I don't know if you've seen um, it, it called Baby Driver. That's a fantastic movie. I, I, yeah, no, I, I've seen that movie like six times. The because, opening sequence. Oh is, man, it's all continuous shot. Yeah, too. it's amazing. And did you know that they actually had the um, the editor? On scene, and they were shooting those scenes to the songs. Now, somebody yeah. as a filmmaker, you understand I that know, it's usually amazing. it's they shoot it and then like make the music work. They were like, "No, we're going to make this scene in one shot with music playing." Yep. And the guy like up. goes up and he's walking by a store, and there's a, a, a like a, a graphic that has trumpets, and he just happens to go up and move his mouth yeah. the right way, right in the song goes. Yeah, like yeah. wow. No, I totally get you there. Um, okay, we are moving on to your final song. My final song. What is your final song? Uh, this land is your land by Woody Guthrie. One of the best, maybe the best, folk song ever written uh, here in this American folk music. I think so. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know. It, it just – I think it captures the spirit of America in a way that uh, other songs – no other song really does. And I, because he's a, he's a folk writer, he, uh, he always – he's a classic folk singer in, in that his songs were – even though like that one sounds very on the surface, very patriotic and so on, but it, it, all of his songs had kind of a subtext of – uh, talking about social injustice or something like that. He was like folk music still does today. Yeah, yeah. Even more so perhaps. But, yeah, yeah. But uh, it reminds me of when I first started to teach myself music because I, I would – one day – I was a junior high school. In fact, when I first started to really try to figure out the piano, I still didn't know any theory. I didn't learn that until I went to college. But I was – I had a class right next to the music room. So – it's junior high, you know, it's first year you start changing classrooms in, in between classes, changing, you have to walk around the building. And so I got to the music room like in three seconds when the bell rang mm-hmm. and then I had to wait five minutes even for the teacher to show up. So I could go play, they had a little rolling piano in there, a little spinet piano that yeah. rolled, they could roll it around wherever they needed it. And I would just sit there and play it and try to figure it out. And one time I got sort of lost in myself and, I, and the piano, uh, my back was to the room. And so I'm playing the piano, and I was just I, I was just making stuff up. I was playing just by ear. I have no idea what even any of the notes were, <laughs> but I was playing that song or trying to play it. And then I was improvising, and then uh, all of a sudden I heard somebody clear their throat, and I was like, "Oh, 
I looked around, and the entire class was filled. Oh, wow. And they were all just watching me. And even the teacher was standing over on the side just looking at me. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. I, might, I thought I was in trouble. She says, and then everybody clapped. Mm-hmm. That was a big moment. So, I mean, for a kid, you know, when well, you're sure. trying to learn music. So yeah, I, that stuck with me. And that song reminds me of that moment because hmm. that's what I was trying to play. Hmm. Well, let's listen to it. Uh, this Land is Your Land by Woody Guthrie, written in 1940. This land is your land, and this land is my land, California. You know, it, it, it does sound primitive, mm. but it's also amazing how great it sounds, mm-hmm. too. You know what I mean? Yeah. For that old of a recording, yeah. as somebody as you know who you've yeah. put yourself in front of microphones. Mm -hmm. It's amazing how that can travel through time like that. Yeah, that's great. That's a real piece of American history. Your um, your most recent album really taps into that sort of ethos, right? Mm -hmm. Can you reflect on that and where all that comes from for you these days? Yeah. Well, the album is uh, Dust Bowl American Stories. And Woody Guthrie, of course, the Dust Bowl happened in the 1930s in the Great Plains. Uh, There was a drought that started in 31 and didn't really end until 39. And... Millions of people uh, became homeless. They became migrants in their own country. And uh, he referenced that, too, in that song a little bit. He was, he's, a, he's from Oklahoma, Woody Guthrie was. And uh, he wrote famously about the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression, which were happening at the same time mm-hmm. for most of America. It took a while for the Depression kind of to reach the inside of the country. Back then, only about 10% of the people were actually invested in the stock market. Now everybody is because of 401ks and all that yeah, stuff. That didn't exist back then. and all that, yeah. So, you know, only a handful of people, 10%, I think, were in the stock market. So it, it took a while for the Great Depression to hit everybody. But uh, the, the Dust Bowl hit uh, the Great Plains real hard. By 1934, it was really devastating. So when I learned about that, I thought, that's just great. And I, I want to – I mean, it's not great that it happened, but it's a great story right. because it's a story of – people overcoming incredible adversity like that. Some people were able to stick it out and get through the other side. Other people left, like I mentioned, millions of people left. You know, 15% of the population of Oklahoma literally left the state. Wow. Never to come back. Um, A lot of them went out to the Central Valley of California, you know, looking for agricultural jobs. Weren't hardly enough. Mm -hmm. That led to uh, a lot of people being paid poverty wages. There was no minimum wage or anything like that then. If if someone offered you a dollar a day... Or he gives it to somebody else and you have to feed your family. That's what you'll take. You know, you have no choice about it. So I, I don't know. That whole thing that, about how we stuck together as a country in a lot of ways just spoke to me. And I thought that's a great thing. And after all my experience of writing movies, people say, isn't writing doing the score for a movie hard? And I, I always say no because you know what you have to do. Mm-hmm. When you are writing a song, is a blank piece of paper. Yeah. Now, what am I going to write about? Yeah. You know, I don't even have a topic, nothing. Is it another love song? That's kind of boring. It's gotta, you've got to write about something, I think. So uh, write, do, scoring movies is kind of simple because you have something in front of you that you know. If you've watched a lot of movies, you know what you need to do. Right. You know, you have, i got to write a, a chase scene, then there's a love thing, and i got to create suspense here or whatever. So I thought the next record should be a theme record. Because it'll be actually easier. <laughs> yeah. Well, that that's sort of the, the the Dust Bowl was the movie you were scoring. Exactly. I was right? scoring a movie. Hmm. It was a little more freeing because I could write any aspect of it. It's not a movie somebody else wrote. Sure. But it's history. It's real history. So some of the songs are very explicit and they're very you know based on something that happened or a series of events, whereas others are just set in that world. Little vignettes that happened. Uh, either for real or in my imagination, but in that world, in that time and place. And uh, so that's – but I discovered, not just because I'm lazy and I thought it would be easier to do it, but I thought it would connect with people, and it really did. Hmm. And uh, now that's probably all I'll ever do now. I want to write theme records. I think it's easier and it's – you really connect with – like when I go up to o- Oklahoma and Texas and places like that and the Great Plains that were affected or the California Central Valley, like Bakersfield. Mm-hmm. That those people, this really resonates with people that live there, hmm. whose family went through that. One of your songs from this album is in a movie, right? Yes, in fact, uh, the one I wrote a song called "I Come from America," which I meant to be kind of like my homage to Woody Guthrie, 
who's from Oklahoma, who was there during the Dust Bowl for a lot of it. And uh, I wanted to write a song like that, that made you feel good, um, that uh, underscored the the uh, tenacity of Americans when we get put in a corner. You know, we tend to be strong, stronger than when we're not in a corner. Right. And uh, and the subtext, like his songs, always had that subtext, is about how the Americans, were, we, we Americans were treated when we tried to go to places like California. And a lot of times they, because so many went out there, they started to put in controls, like at the border, like mm-hmm. no Okies, <laughs> for yes, example. Right, right. Or give us $200 and these people didn't have $2. Yeah. You know, and then they rousted them out of when they set up a migrant camp somewhere. They would come and the authorities would come and rouse them out. And, you know, they, they weren't treated. We didn't treat each other too well during mm-hmm. some of that time. Yeah. So that's the kind of subtext. It's still, a, you know, a, a positive song. Hmm. It just has that as a subtext. You know what you just said? I'm just going to throw this out there. You said, you know, we're always stronger when we're in a corner. It's mm-hmm. a shame we can't all find a corner to go to together, I know. right? You know, <clears throat> all right. Like, we need a corner. Um, Man of Steel, National Veterans Foundation. Yeah. What's that about? Well, uh, I met, is that from this album too? Or no, is that, okay. it came afterwards. Um, I met a young man at, a, at Charlotte Airport almost exactly a year ago, and he had one of those uh, fancy prosthetic legs on. Mm-hmm. Well, it's kind of space age looking Star Trek leg. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we were there for a long time, and so we started talking a little bit. And he was like maybe twenty six or seven or something like that, and he'd lost it over in the Middle East. He was a, in the army, and uh, we talked quite a bit about it and the whole experience over there. And I finally, I said, I worked up, after talking to him for a while, I wouldn't blurt this out in the first five minutes. I said, does it bother you, you know, that you don't, you're not going to have your leg? It's not going to go back. So <laughs> you're forever without that. Yeah. And he said, no, you know what? Life is dangerous. You can get hit by a bus. You can, I, he was from Indiana. He's had friends that worked on farms that lost body parts all the time. Right. <laughs> hey, not every day, but, you know, life is dangerous. And he said, like, yeah. I did what I wanted to do and I served my country and I'm not, I'm not uh, sad I did that. And it turned out he was going to be the first person in his family in his entire history to get to go to college because he served long enough in the military. He could use the, I think, the GI Bill, mm-hmm. lets him go to college. And that's where he was going. He was going off to college, hmm. which I thought was amazing. So about a week later, I was, uh, I was back home and I was writing, just not writing. I was just playing and practicing. A lot of times songs come when I'm just practicing. Because I play something by accident and go, ooh, I like that. I yeah, like yeah. the way that – that's cool. I, I, bet, I know I can make that into a song. <laughs> and I started playing these chords and I thought – I just started singing uh, kind of like from his point of view. Not just him in particular but all the people that go over and do the, do the brave thing mm-hmm. that uh, I'm not brave enough to do. So to honor them, I wrote this song. So Man of Steel refers to the fact that he has lots of metal parts in him. Hmm. He had some – rods in his neck too from the different event <laughs> and uh, I don't know I just uh, uh, I was very honored that the National Veterans Foundation chose as their, as their did, theme did song you, did you like submit it to them or how did they hear it or <clears throat> yeah did they, were they having some sort of an open call or th- no, no no we just we went out and and uh, because it's so strong and positive in its message I mean it's not pro-war <laughs> but it's Pro the people that right. serve, and uh, it's not it's not rah rah. Let's go blow things up. It's not that at all. But um, it is honoring them, and they deserve to be honored. Hmm. So we yeah we went out and and you know there are many different veterans organizations that help them, and uh, like wounded warriors and so on. And there's many, but we just went out and they were the they were the ones that said yes hmm. to make it their theme song. Some of the other ones already had theme songs, or they were already working with another like a more famous artist than me and. So right, right. Well, it must be a nice honor. Yeah, it is. And I played the song a lot. I, pl- I always play it in my show, and it always gets a very strong reaction. Hmm. Um, what would your the seventeen year old self that you were when you walked up on that kid with the guitar, if he could see forward in time to you on stage at Carnegie Hall or mm-hmm. whatever, how would he feel? He would not believe it. Yeah, he would not believe it. And he would also say, "Where's all your hair?" Because I had <laughs> long hair back. <laughs> I still have hair, but not as much. <laughs> You'd be pretty pretty happy, though? <laughs> I think you would be. You'd say, well, I'm not such a jerk as I thought I was. I guess I'd do something right. Um, if you could stand on stage with anybody throughout time wow. and play a, play a you know, three-song set, who would it be? Wow. I didn't expect that question. I don't know if I could give one answer. Yeah. I don't know. 
I think a younger Bob Dylan, when he was in his prime, mm-hmm. writing classic songs like mm-hmm. he did. Uh, boy, Paul McCartney, yeah, definitely John Lennon. All, all, the, all the Beatles. Let me be the fifth Beatle. I wanted to be that when I was a kid. I wanted to be the little blonde-haired kid from Florida that was in the Beatles. <laughs> they were all like 25 and I was five or whatever I was. And I wanted to be – and then I later decided I wanted to be Batman. Oh, yeah? That didn't work out. That didn't out. work out? No. How far did you get down that road? <laughs> well, not very far. <laughs> Afraid of heights. <laughs> uh, Wouldn't okay. be a very good Batman at all. Okay, uh, last question we always ask. Are there any songs that you will always turn off if they come up on the radio? Always turn off? Always turn there, off. There are many of them. Okay. And I don't listen to them long enough to even know what their names are. Gotcha. You just there, There's just a whole swath of genre that you're yeah. just like, yeah, I don't want that I guess I'm right. the wrong generation. Like like the real hardcore rap stuff, I'm not, I'm not a fan. Gotcha. And there is good rap music. Oh, yeah. My son likes it. You know, he's, he's the right generation. And he, he's played me some stuff. And I'm like, wow, that's really well written, like great lyrics. Yeah, yeah. But I don't like the angry stuff and yelling bad words. I'm not going to listen to that. Gotcha. Okay, well, we are going to have you play a final parting tune, uh, so get your guitar ready. Uh, Any final thoughts while you're strapping that thing on? I just want to say thank you for having me in here. It's been different. I've never had an interview like, like this before. And we try to do our own thing here. <laughs> we just love doing it. We love we love music, me and Richard, and we love um, being able to talk to people and get to know them through this lens. So thanks for doing it. Thanks to both y'all. So what are we going to hear here? I want to play a song called Man of Steel, the one we talked about a minute ago. All right. Let's hear it in just a second. Uh, we make this show in the WGCU studios on the Florida Gulf Coast University campus in Fort Myers, Florida. Richard Chinqui is co-creator and producer. Tara Calligan is online content producer. Our executive producer is Chris Duffus. Our theme song was created by Dave, Dave, Dave Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete. Special thanks today for our guest director, John Davis. Take it away, Grant. I was born right here, like everyone, learn to read and write, learn to walk and run, writing in my daddy's trunk in summer, it felt like flying, I was a scrawny kid, not too great at school. I enlisted then The next thing I knew I'm saying my goodbyes and trading numbers And mama's crying In my soldier clothes In the blazing sun Riding dusty roads With my soldier gun Then the earth rolled it spit me out There was fire and blood I can feel it now I'm a man of steel Made of pins and wires But these scars will heal I still got my fire I'm a man of steel Ever since that day But my heart's still real You can't take that away It's been three long months The nurses say They're gonna ship me home But I sure wanna stay Cause every friend I have is going nowhere When they're still trying In my soldier clothes In the blazing sun Riding dusty roads With my soldier gun Then the earth rolls up and it spit me out There was fire and blood I can feel it now I'm a man of steel Made of 
these scars will heal I still got my fire I'm a man of steel Ever since that day But my heart's still real I'm a man of steel And my heart's still real Can't take that away Hey, Three Song Stories listeners, keep listening. Next time on Three Song Stories. You know, I heard it and I was like, man, that blues sounds really cool. I want to go, I want to go get that. So I went to the record bar in the Edison Mall. Yeah, right next um, to the gold mine. Yeah, uh, Fish was working there, a guy named John Keane. <laughs>